0: Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Well, thank you. Good to see you all this morning. Glad you could make it. Again, my name is Ryan. I'm a partner here at Rev. And it's my joy to get to bring us into a second week in our new series in James. Uh, We started last week and we introduced the series of James and talked about how one of the main overriding themes in James is that we might be perfect and complete in Jesus Christ. You know, God is working in you. God is working in me. And he's working that we might be made complete in Jesus. You know, it's by the work of his Holy Spirit, through his word, through his people, little by little, every day, he's conforming us to be more and more like Jesus. And part of being perfect and complete in Jesus is both knowing and loving and feeling all the things we should when we think about the Lord and in him, and walking out those knowledge and feeling and understandings rightly before him. As we mentioned last week, it's not really fair to read James against Paul. They both are often writing very early. Uh, They probably haven't talked much before that. And James is not trying to pit himself against Paul in faith and works. In fact, for James, his understanding of faith can't be separated from works. It's a very Jewish way of thinking about it. It'd be like you and I talking to someone and saying, do you believe in gravity? And then proceeding to watch our friend, climb to the top of a third-story building and jump off and be surprised when their legs are hurt when they hit the ground. You said you believed in it. Then why did you make an action that's not consistent with that? You know, James is talking about faith as a whole package of believing and doing. He's not disagreeing with Paul that it is only by our faith in Jesus that we're justified. He just expects that that faith will have some effect in us, that we will begin to walk rightly as beloved sons and daughters. Paul does the same thing when Paul plants a church, he ends up writing back to them again and again to encourage them to live rightly in light of the fact that they are God's sons and daughters, to live out the faith that they have. We also noted last week that James notes that what's often true in our life, the environment that we often find ourselves in is some sort of trial, that it's in that environment that God is working us to perfection and completion in Jesus. And that's one of the steady features in our life. And it was for sure true for the Jewish Christians that James was writing to in this letter. And what we saw that James said primarily in, in chapter one, verses two through four, is that we will have trials and trials will test our faith, will refine it, purify it, make it more holy to the Lord, that we might then be more steadfast And the image there was to carry the weight that God is asking us to carry with endurance, to be able to walk forward under it for a great time, that the final goal would be that we would be seen as perfect and complete in Jesus. And that's where we pick up this morning in James 1 through 5. We're still in this bigger section that's trying to help our hearts be rightly oriented to how to live in the midst of trials, what to do when difficulties are happening, and one of the main goals that we want to see today is that trials are an opportunity for godly wisdom. In fact, trials are an opportunity for us to seek out godly wisdom. You now, there's so many things that we want to seek during a trial, and we probably don't start with wisdom. And usually, it's, how do I get out of this? I don't want this to be happening to me anymore. You know, there's these funny things that I like to call pastorisms. They're they're just sayings by pastors, stories by pastors that who knows where they started. Uh, someone somewhere said it. Sometimes someone else ripped them off, never gave them credit. And now it just exists. It's out there everywhere. One of those stories that I, that I think kind of pertains to what we're talking about today goes like this: uh, There's a man who is is being given a vision of heaven by an angel in a dream. And, and he's seeing all the wonderful beauties and glory of what heaven looks like. The, the new heavens and the new earth that meet together now in the new Jerusalem. Uh, seeing God's people all the way from Adam and Eve up to his grandparents, enjoying one another in the presence of God and seeing how that presence of God is actually lighting up the whole of creation with his very grace, love, and mercy. And as the angel's taking him around and he sees the tree of life next to the stream of life and everything's kind of winding up and the the vision's about to end, he notices there's a big building that the the angel kind of just passed by. And he said, hey, what's in that? And the angel says, I don't know if you want to see that. And just like you and just like me, that would just pique your interest. You'd be like, no, no, I think I do. (laughs) I want to go see that building. So the angel says, okay, opens up that door. And in there from floor to ceiling, multiple floors are all these wrapped presents that have never been opened. And the man says, well, what's going on there? Why are those there? And the angel says to him, those are the, all the gifts that God prepared for his children that were never claimed through prayer. Now, undoubtedly, all of us think too little of our God as our loving father who wants to give good things to us. There are so many places in scripture that petition us, call for us to ask God for what we need. Uh, Jesus says this, this way in Matthew 7:7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. You Our passage today seems to be starting in a very similar kind of place, asking for God what we need in our trials. So look what James says right here in the beginning of our section today. He says in James 1, 5 through 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. You know, a quick read of that, we might say, okay, I get what he's saying here. If I have issues, difficulties, things I need to have from the Lord to help me out, I should just ask him, and if I have enough faith, he's going to answer me and give that to me. And that's a, a common quick misreading of this section. In fact, there's an entire thing called the prosperity gospel built on that idea. If you're not familiar with the prosperity gospel, the idea is that you too can have all of your problems solved if you just have enough faith. Need some more money? Ask God. If you have the right faith, he'll give it to you. Need a better job, a better life, a better place to live? Ask God. If you have the right faith, it's up to you to have the right faith and that God wants you to have that. You know, success, prestige, these false teachers want you to think that the problem is your faith in God. You know, we would firmly renounce that kind of false teaching for many reasons, not the very least of which is that they take passages like today and twist it, but then they also time take promises that are meant for us, meant for the future in the new heavens and the new earth, and they try to bring it back today and act as though that's going to be true for you today in God and not realize that it's a future promise. You know, but this kind of idea, it really does play into our desires, doesn't it? Especially in a trial. I mean, when things are going good, you might be able to say to yourself, I don't really need that new house. I don't really need that new job. But if you were wandering around daily experiencing the pangs of hunger because of the poverty that you were in, you would so want that to just be gone, to ask for that practical change. It might be easy to say, oh, you know, I don't need that old car, this current one. That's sufficient. That'll work for me. But if you're laying in a hospital bed, having major issues with your health, to just want to be back to any semblance of of a normal health would just seem like everything that you want. You know, if, if we look more closely at this passage, James isn't saying just ask for anything. Look what he says at the very beginning here. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you lack wisdom, James is not encouraging that we can ask whatever we need of of God and that he will always give if we just have enough faith. You know, this is in particular a continuation of what James said to us last week uh, where he said that the trials produce the refining of our faith. The refining of our faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness produces perfect and completeness in Jesus Christ. And then he ends that section saying that you might lack nothing. That you might lack nothing. And that's where our passage starts this morning saying, if you lack wisdom, for James, part of that perfection and completeness in Jesus Christ is coming to have wisdom. We shouldn't be lacking that if God is working out what he's working in us. And you know what's interesting is the goal is not to get rid of the trial necessarily, which would often be our first inclination, but rather trust God in its purposes when necessary to have its proper effect as Peter would say, and to do our part in asking him for what we really need, which is wisdom. In general, one of the things we should be thinking about when we come to this section of James is this. He wants us to see that we we don't ask how to get out of our trials, rather ask what to get out of our trials. Don't ask how to get out of it, rather ask what does God want me to, to see? What does God want me to get out of this trial? And that fits very well with what James has been saying to us, to the degree it is necessary for a while, trust God with what he is giving you in this trial and specifically seek his wisdom in it. It's actually very similar to what Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 7. When, when Jesus continues on in that same passage, he says it this way. He says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now, note something interesting here. Jesus doesn't promise you're going to get bread. Jesus doesn't promise you're going to get the fish. But he promises that if you ask for bread, you're not going to get a stone, which isn't good for, for consumption to help you with the issue that you have. Nor if you ask for a fish, or he's not going to give you a serpent, which might not kill you. You know, I was, I was thinking about this analogy and this, this parable and, and, and laughing because I think our culture today might understand this in a different way that actually is really helpful. I don't know if you've experienced this, but praise God that we have so much new medical technology, so much more understanding of how people are affected by their food. It's a fantastic thing. Yet so often anymore, when you invite people over to your house, you end up having to make 10 different meals to make sure that there is no one who is left out because someone has allergies to something and how it's going to affect them. Now again, praise God. There are people who are probably walking around for thousands of years who have had issues in their life, didn't realize the health ramifications of the food they were eating on them. We're very thankful for that. But our dietary reality that we live in today helps us maybe understand this a little better. It'd be like you going before the Lord, going before Jesus, saying, Jesus, can I have some bread? And Jesus looking at you and going, Man, I hear you. You want some bread. You're gluten intolerant. <laughs> That's not going to turn out so good for you. So guess what? You may not like it, but guess what? I got some rice cakes. kind of tastes like cardboard. I'm really sorry. This is going to be much better for you in the long run. It's going to help your health. And it really wouldn't be loving of me to give you bread knowing the struggle that you have, the reality that you might not even be aware of for generations. It's very similar to what James is helping us to see. You know, our first inclination when we're in a trial is often to look for the way out. Yet we should want it to produce the perfection and the completion that James says it is working out in us. And what we need more than the solution is to see and know the very wisdom of God. To get out of our trial what God has for us rather than to get out of the trial. And again, the trial becomes for us an opportunity to seek the wisdom of God. So if we buy into that, we start to ask, what what do you mean then by wisdom? Uh, What does that look like? And if we go to Proverbs, Proverbs 2.6 says this. It says the Lord gives wisdom. Same thing James is saying. We have one location we can get to to find true wisdom, which is to go and sit before the Lord. In fact, when we look at Proverbs, we see that wisdom is both the way in which God's sons and daughters can discern what God desires, what he loves, what he knows. And wisdom is also how we can carry out those actions that would please God. We see that in places like Proverbs 2 and 3 and 9. Now, this is exactly how James understands faith, that it's all wrapped together with our doing and being and acting, that God reveals himself to us and will guide us in his ways. In this sense, wisdom isn't just intellectual. It's not academic. It's not philosophical. I mean, sure, we need knowledge to be wise, but we can be knowledge. We can have knowledge without being wise. Wisdom is actually very personable. It's very personal. Uh, Proverbs 4, 7 says this. It says, Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. And so you're left wondering, so what, what do you want me to do? What does that actually mean? And, th- and the writer, of Proverbs, goes on and answers that exact question, says this: Proverbs 9:10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. James is calling us to see God and to know him more amidst our trials as the most important goal. And we are promised that God giving us wisdom means he's going to give us himself. We're going to see and know him more. That's what the wisdom is. It's coming face to face in relationship with our God. That's the ultimate goal. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2.2. He says that your and my hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God has already given us all access to all the wisdom and all the knowledge that we need to know through Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. Isn't that amazing? Wisdom is not just a thing to go pursue detached. It's just knowledge that we need to have Wisdom is a person. It's a relationship. It's found in knowing God through Jesus. We can do that through reading his word. We can do that through praying. We can do that by relating with him through the Holy Spirit. And while scripture exhorts us often to find godly men and women to to counsel us, to give us good advice, James says specifically here, let him, let her ask God. Go to God have a relationship with him, God will give it to you directly, and he will give his sons and daughters wisdom. Now, there's a particular wisdom and that God wants to give us in himself, and he says here, and James says that he's like a loving father who gives generously to all without reproach. He's not going to send you away if you're asking him as a son and daughter. What's interesting here is this word for generous, we, we don't translate it usually as generous. In fact, it's, it's a weird word. It, it talks about like singular, undivided, being integrous. Uh, the old King James would sometimes try to use it that way. Look how Luke th- uh, 1134 says it. Uh, this is Jesus, the light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body also is full of light. That's the same idea James has here. When we ask God for wisdom, he will give it to us singularly, undivided, with integrity, because that's who he is. There's only one answer. There's only one way he can give it to us because he wants us to know him, to have his wisdom, to know his purposes and desire, and for us to know how in every situation, us walking it out rightly makes us more like Jesus and more perfect and complete. God promises that, that he will always give us wisdom in our lacking. And what he is giving us is himself in relationship. It's interesting though, James says, we have to come and ask for this kind of wisdom from God rightly with the right kind of attitude. Look what he continues on with here in James 1, 6 through 8. He says, but let him ask in faith... With no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now that we've seen clearly that James is asking us to seek wisdom, not just everything, but wisdom from the Lord, it helps us understand better what he means by asking faith. That idea here means then to come and ask God alone. In faith, to ask Him as the only answer and solution rather than being turning away and going and then asking the world, seeking my own knowledge, seeking the easy path forward. That's what it means to ask in faith, to truly believe and walk out our belief that God alone has the wisdom we need in our trials, if not in life in general. The analogy that James gives here would have been very appropriate and known to people living in a Mediterranean area by the sea, especially people on the Sea of Galilee. The picture isn't of waves crashing on a shore. The image is of a storm and waves going back and forth and being thrown all directions and not knowing what's going on. In fact, James does something so interesting here. He makes up a word. It must be cool to be an apostle filled with the very Holy Spirit of God and go, you know what we need here? We need a brand new word to tell you how to do this right? This this word that James uses for double-minded is new. He uses it here. He uses it again in James 4. It's not seen anywhere in Greek literature previously, but then after James, right, it takes off in Greek literature. And we even have that idea still in our culture today of being double-minded. What James actually says here is that double-souled. It's even more than just your mind. It's as if your whole nature is split in what you want to do. On one hand, going this way, and the other side, wanting to go that way and align yourself differently. And this is why It's helpful when we look at God and talk about how did he give generously. God gives singularly, undivided, with integrity. And that's why it's a problem when we're double-minded. We are to approach him singularly, unified, with integrity, knowing that he is the only one that we can get, that we can find the wisdom and the knowledge that we need. We should not be those whose soul... Is not singularly set on finding God's purpose. Now, friends, are you praying and pursuing the wisdom of God first and foremost in your trials? Do you see that as one of the most important pieces of what you should be doing anytime there is a trial in front of you, knowing God more fully that you might have his wisdom? I I, I dare say that's not always my first thought. And even when I do try to find the wisdom of God, I'm so quickly torn away to want to come back to my own thoughts, the ways that the world proposed to do it, what looks like the easier path for me to walk. As James is saying here, if I don't pursue God similarly, reject my own wisdom, reject the wisdom of the world, reject the paths that look like they're all around me, I'm not going to ever really attain the wisdom from that situation that I should have. That God wants to give to me generously out of that moment, in that trial, in that moment of difficulty, or even just questioning. In your trials, friends, do you view gaining the wisdom of God and knowing him more in Jesus as important? Do you view wisdom, finding wisdom, like the way the Proverbs writer says, look what, what they say about wisdom. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She, wisdom, is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all of her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Do you so desire wisdom? God Himself, relationship with Him, knowing Him, that you're willing to go to great lengths for it, to pray for it, even if it takes trials to get it. What if, what if, through your prayers and your pursuit of God right now, you may get much more of Him, much more of His wisdom, even if the trial you're in didn't end? Would it be worth it to get more of God? Where James goes next is kind of an example where many people think he's being sporadic, kind of ADD, not able to keep track of what's going on. But in fact, he's weaving together something beautiful here. And there's many scholars who believe that James's logic is right up there with Paul, Paul with Romans and Ephesians. It's just he's thinking through it from an Eastern perspective where we're so enculturated as Western thinkers that when Paul takes on a very Greek mentality of explaining things in his logic, that just feels so much more comfortable to us. Where James goes next is much like Jesus. It reminds me of him. You know, when Jesus is sitting there and the crowds bring before him a woman caught in adultery, right? And the Pharisees look at him and say, hey, Scripture tells us we should stone her. What do you say? And Jesus, he doesn't really answer the question straight out. He just looks at them and says, hey, whoever hasn't sinned, throw the first stone. And the Scripture says to us, one by one, starting with the oldest to the youngest, they set down their stones and they walk away. right, that crowd likely could have challenged and Jesus said, you didn't really answer the question. But Jesus would have been, I did. I answered the real question in front of me. I went to the heart of the issue, the heart of what was going on with the people in that moment. In fact, that's really close to what James says here next. Look what James does. James goes here. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flowers falls, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Remember, James is writing to these Jewish Christians who are in persecution, who are sent out, dispersed throughout the entire empire. And he's just finished encouraging them to seek out the wisdom of God, to know God himself and his desires. So it makes perfect sense that he turns here to a reality that would be very real and pertinent to them, poverty. We talked about last week how poverty is a theme that will come up again and again in James. And we see it come up here. It was a very real situation for those who have no home anymore, who lost their livelihood. How are they going to provide? And here, just like Jesus, James turns to the real issue at hand and cuts to the heart of the issue for the Jewish Christians receiving this letter. Jesus says almost the exact same thing in one of his parables when he talks about the parable of the rich fool. The rich fool who who stacks up all of his wealth, stores it up, and decides he can kind of kick back and retire now and it's going to be great for him. And he's told that very night his soul is required of him in Luke 12. The easy part of this section is to understand that the rich will die no different than anyone else. The sun of life will rise, it will begin to set, they will wither like all things do coming to the fall. The flowers will fall, the leaves will fall they will die no different. You know, he will die in the midst of his pursuits. You know, and what's interesting though is James has an exhortation here. He has an exhortation in that reality of the rich and what happens to them both for the the poor and for the rich. He, He encourages the poor to boast in their exaltation and he encourages the rich to boast in their humility. And that might seem strange, but what it seems that James is doing here is he's trying to encourage in in a very parable-like way that the rich and poor both find their value, their meaning in their salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Think about that. For the poor, what would be more exalting? They have nothing that seems of any means that anyone should ever want to listen to them, nothing to really offer to the situation, yet in Jesus Christ They are royal priests, beloved sons and daughters of the most high God who have every treasure promised to them in the new heavens, in the new earth. And for the rich, in one sense, what is more humiliating than to have to admit that all these things you've collected do not change your standing at all? in any real and meaningful way. You are still separated by your sins from a holy God, and you need a righteous Savior to bring you back to him. Everything that you have will not purchase you what you need most. You will die just like a poor person, and what you both need is Jesus. We could spend an entire sermon, several weeks just in this section, You and I, just by the default of being Americans in comparison to the rest of the world, are the rich people. We're the ones who should look in humility at what we have and be reminded that our only hope is no different than everyone else, which is Jesus Christ. It will not save us. And perhaps for you, this is exactly what you need to hear today in your trial. Maybe this is the issue for you, just like the Jewish Christians that James is writing to. For some reason or another, the trial you are going through is tempting you from looking to God and realizing that your riches don't really matter in comparison to salvation in Jesus Christ, and rather you vacillate. You're struggling with looking to, to the worldly paradigms of provision, your own desires for the things of this earth that you might have them. And the bigger picture here that James is demonstrating, though, is that all of us, all of us in our trials can find this kind of wisdom for whatever we are going through in the Lord, in knowing him, in coming to his word, in prayer, through his Holy Spirit, ministering to our souls. Are you struggling in your trials today with health? Do you remember that God says to you that one day he will wipe every tear from your eye and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying or pain in the new heavens, that he is going to deal with that? As he says in Revelation 21, are you struggling this morning in your trials under the weight of your sins and your, your temptations? Do you remember that God tells you that He is faithful and that He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it in 1 Corinthians 10? You know, whether it's our physical needs, financial needs, spiritual needs, Whether we approach God through his word, whether we approach him through prayer, whether it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, God promises to give wisdom to those, to his sons and daughters who approach him singularly with faith, that he is the only hope, the only answer that we need. He may not take away the promises. In fact, he often doesn't. Yet he promises that we will find him, we will find his wisdom if we ask. And ultimately, it seems like all that wisdom, all the different things that we we could possibly need in wisdom point us in one way or another to this last beautiful example that James gives in this section. This is what he says. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is one of the most beautiful promises that we have in God is that if we endure the trials of this earth by his power and strength in his Holy Spirit, he will give us the very crown of life. We will live forevermore walking with him face to face for eternity. <clears throat> we see the same thing said again in Revelation 2.10 by Jesus. Jesus says this. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. These are all suffering, trials. Be faithful, even unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. All suffering will happen. You will have trials. You will have suffering. And it will test your faith. But that's a good thing. It will refine it. It will purify it, that you might better love and know and have faith in the Lord, and that will produce steadfastness in your life, that you might walk under the endurance, with the endurance that the Lord wants for you, that you may one day be made perfect and complete in Jesus, and being found in Jesus, in knowing God, in relationship with him, you and I are guaranteed the crown of life. How sweet is it that God has given us his very wisdom in himself, in his son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior? You know, as we all, I pray in this season as we go through James, are petitioning God and asking him, God, how might you want to be making me more perfect and complete? How might I need to better connect my knowing, my loving, my feeling with my actions and my walking out of my faith with you? Are you asking God for his wisdom? Are you willing to go to his word, to pursue him in prayer, to be open to the promptings of his Holy Spirit? And perhaps just as important, are you asking for wisdom in faith, trusting that God is the only place that you can find that wisdom, trusting that God is the only one who can give it to you, and that all you need is to know him? I'd like to invite the the worship team up as they come up during this next song, I'd like you to consider why don't you want to pursue the wisdom of God sometimes? Is there something going on in your life right now where you don't want to look to him for his wisdom? And in what ways might you need to surrender yourself, your passions, your desires, your best ideas to the very wisdom of God? Whether you find that through his word, through prayer and communion with him, through the work of his Holy Spirit in your life, to stop looking to get out from underneath the trials and look more to see what God would have for you in the midst of those trials, and to see that what God wants ultimately is that you would have more of him, have more of him, more of his wisdom, and see him more beautifully in Jesus. Uh, during the song, would you also come take the elements for communion, hold them, we'll take them after the song is finished. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God, what an amazing joy it is that you have given us yourself. You've given us yourself and your very son, Jesus Christ, who, who died our sinner's death on the cross, who, who was raised in righteousness as the, as the firstborn, the first fruit of that whole promise that we get to enjoin with him and that he is interceding daily for us and making a place for us that we one day might join him in living face to face with you, our God. Thank you for the wisdom that you promised to give us, Lord, and thank you that that is done in our relationship with Jesus. There is nothing for us to fight for, but rather as beloved sons and daughters to sit before a Father who loves us, who cares for us, and finds that you want to give us your very wisdom, your love, your mercy, your grace in the very face of Jesus Christ. Would we see it there most clearly even today? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.